loved you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Show! Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello, and welcome to episode 346 of the Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice. Of Young Adult Cancer, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year Young Adult Cancer survivor, broadcasting now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is the production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. This episode, we're going to be talking with Jen McRobbie, breast cancer survivor, life coach, and author of Why Is She Acting So Weird? A Guide to Cultivating Closeness When a Friend is in Crisis and a Survivor Spotlight on Anne-Marie Otis. Hello, Sean, Mallory, and Kenny. Hey. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to our first show, post-Cancer Con. What happened? I have no idea. Something pretty interesting. It feels weird not to be moving. (laughs) It's all blur. This is your first time back in the office in, what, a month? Uh, For the show, yes. Yes. It's pretty amazing. So let's talk about the road trip. Uh, 14 cities, 14 days, incredible Media pickups. You got to meet a bunch of. What was your your highlight? Uh, I think the low light was New Orleans on a Monday night. Uh, yeah, it's a rough it's a rough city that on a Monday. <laughs> um, just I mean the trip in general is is pretty wild. Uh, I always have a good turnout in SoCal uh, between San Diego and the LA area, so that was great. We paid tribute to our old venue, the Palms Casino, uh, for a couple of days between hosting the meetups and, and heading out to Denver for CancerCon. Uh, so that was nice. That was a nice little break. Um, and Atlanta looked nice, too. Atlanta was fun, yep. Uh, yeah, every city was great. Uh, just we hit a lot of weather this year, which is unanticipated. Well, speaking of that, you did tweet a photo of an actual tornado. 
Yes, we were driving through the panhandle of Texas. Amarillo, Texas. And uh, sure enough, the skies got real dark. And uh, we saw this thing spinning to our <laughs> left. And didn't really know what to do. Didn't, Except drive faster. Right. I hadn't taken my tornado readiness class. <laughs> so I was just taking cues from other people. And they were driving. So I was like, all right, I guess we're just going to keep driving. Is that like the people in New York? They just don't care if like some some person gets hit in the street with a car. They just keep walking. I guess so. I mean, we were on the far side of the highway from it, and uh, it was pretty windy. Was that approaching you, or I, I don't know. It was just kind of standing there. Yeah, and uh, I tried not to make eye contact. <laughs> like, wow, wow, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the, the car, uh, Denver, worked out really well. That We parked the car across the street from the hotel. We did. I had a great parking spot. It got tons and tons of foot traffic. Had the foot traffic, had the Segway traffic. Uh, for those of you who are listening that weren't at CancerCon, we, we took the Segways from the car to the stage in a dramatic fashion. It was pretty well done. Oh, you and your helmets. We, don't, we, we strive for excellence. <laughs> I think with the, the overwhelming feedback this year is that the production value uh, was was really great. It was really great, and props to our uh, our um, what are the event management? Not event management. What was Axis? Uh, production. Production. Yeah. yeah, they they did an extraordinary job transforming a really boring uh, hotel ballroom into a fascinating experience. And, it's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah. So, Mal, this is your first official conference. Yes, it was. What's it been like for you to witness this? And be a part of it so actively. Um, I I keep saying to my family who keeps asking me like I I don't know how to accurately describe it. It's overwhelming and amazing all at once. Um, so I just kind of go. Uh, I don't have words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I have pictures, but I don't have words. So yeah, yeah. my my dad, the mayor of, of Stupid Cancer and Cancer Con, uh, always. It, you know, he gives me a lot of constructive criticism after every conference. This could have gone better. This could have been done this way. He had nothing to say this year. That That is a standard. That is a high standard. Yeah, nothing. He said, Matt, this was executed flawlessly. I have nothing to say. Rinse and repeat. It gets better. It's the mayor's seal of approval. We have the Lou seal, the good housekeeping Lou seal of approval. Very impressive. That's pretty awesome. I mean, again, from my, my weird perch being... You know, we're all running around for different reasons. I was running around for different reasons. What I saw was flawless. The exhibiting, um, the breakout sessions, the social events, even the fun run. Like, there was a lot of people that came to the fun run. Yeah, the the fun run looked like it was pretty awesome. Yeah. I was not fun running. No, you were not. Ne- next year. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to fun run this no. year. Next year, I'll fun run. I was and, just eating voodoo donuts during that. Man, which one of you came on the, any of you on the Voodoo Donut run with me? I wasn't on the run, but I was there for the eating. Yeah, because I went, oh no, I went with Dave, Fuhrer, and I forget who I went with. Thea. Oh, right, Dave and Thea. There were four of us. I forget who it was. But anyway, it was amazing, Voodoo Donuts in Denver. But Sean um, wins the the uh, wins the prize for rallying the troops beyond possible ideas, like this fundraising win of the decade. That's one part of everything. Everything was a huge success. No, but I mean, like, you owned that, and you did a great job, and you've been able to... What was the final number? Thank you. Uh, it was $108,274. That is extraordinary. Has the fundraising ended? 
Uh, it's still open, um, but you it, you know it kind of weans down yeah. post cancer. Yeah, con. the incentive is is less than. You know, in, in back in the early days when we started the VIP club, which is now, I mean, the uh, players club, which is now the VIP club. You know, people fundraised for incentive, mm-hmm. and we reduced the incentives. People fundraise because they want to fundraise because it makes a difference. And yes, they know it, it does that. Yes, so. so that's very exciting. And we over a hundred people joined this year. Yeah, well over that. I for, I think we had. Uh, you're putting me on the spot here. Just I'd say hundred. Li- lie yeah. to me. <laughs> 127. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that were engaged this year mm. and attended the conference. And, you know, it was different than being in the, in the Pearl Theater. I mean, we, the Pearl Theater is a very unique venue. It's it's hard hard to top. But I think by for those of you that didn't attend, we had a, a bit of a runway extension off the um, the elevator platform where we, we had the podium. And it was kind of nice to be able to walk out into the audience and, and almost theater in the round for all of us that, that spoke to them. Dan Shapiro did a great job. Uh, Dave Fuhrer from our board did a great job. Um, and uh, again, I really only heard amazing, amazing things. And and if people were going to criticize, they would tell me to my face that this didn't work, this didn't work. Um, so kudos all around. CancerCon 2015 in the bag. It's over. In the bag. A hundred and what, 80 million media impressions, Kenny, something like that? Yes, I think it was 172. Yeah, million media impressions. Incredible. It's incredible. And we launched Instapeer for real um, in the real world. It is uh, in both app stores. It's working out some bugs and kinks. And, and uh, what, what's your, I, I always quote it all the time, BizStone. Kenny taught me this quote from BizStone, founder of Twitter. Uh, can, uh, let me say it correct because you misquoted me. All right, say it again. It's if you aren't embarrassed by your first product, you released it into the marketplace too late. Oh, that's the quote. Yes. Oh, okay. So we did it right. Correct. So <laughs> when we look back and say, "Man, look how crappy that was," which we, it, it isn't. Yeah, that's right. Um, we will. Well, my my spin on that still made sense, even though I completely yes. butchered it. You totally butchered it. Anyway, we have uh, 282 people using Instapeer right now, maybe more. I don't know the exact number, but people are using it. And if you are listening to this broadcast, we hope you are. Um, go to the App Store. Uh, either Google Play or iOS, and just search for Instapeer. Download it. Let us know what you think. Please send your feedback. And we're really excited, truly excited, that this is something we spent. 291. 291. That's a lot of people. It would be curious one day to log in and see like 3,000. Well, we haven't really pushed the big red button yet You know, to get all the... I mean, there's like 90 nonprofit partners and six onco-professional societies and four reproductive medical groups that we haven't really tapped into to do some push and reach, but I'm really happy. I mean, and Dave put me, uh, you know, I, I was, I'm always the, the worst critic of everything. And, and it's, it's great to know people are using it. We are getting good testimonials and that I just wasn't aware of. So take a look at instapeer.org or just search the app store for instapeer. And with that, let's kick off our show. In our survivor spotlight on this episode, Breast Cancer Badass Anne Marie Otis of CureDiva.com and Stupid Dumb Breast Cancer is on a mission to help fellow survivors and their loved ones tackle the question, what happens after cancer? Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Anne Marie Otis. Anne Marie. Hello there. Hey. How you doing? I'm 
doing good. How are you? Good. Are you recovering from CancerCon? Oh, it, and it, it really is recovering, trust me. I can imagine. Yeah. And I'm sorry we had the three times the charm to get you on the show. First the blizzard, then the flu, but here you are. And All uh good. really All good. yes, no no nothing horrible happening today. Glad to have you on the broadcast. Um I, to be here. Yeah, I, I'd love you to just start yeah, start from scratch. We love when our, our survivors uh talk about life before diagnosis, when things were going just as you would hope they were going, and then when everything sort of hit the third rail. Yeah, actually, um, tomorrow is my lump day, as I call it. It's the day that I found my lump, so kind of a poignant day for me. Um, it's the only day that I acknowledge in this whole process. Everything was fine before cancer. I was a mom. I'm a mom of four boys. Um, Forty had just turned forty, which I think is young. Very active, you know. Worked out every day, all that great stuff, ate right, and then, lo and behold, a, one lump changed my life. Um, didn't not think it could happen to me, but when it happened to me, everything changed. You know, when you hear those words, you have cancer, it's like that wave hits you and you, you're underwater and you can't find a way to come out. And when you come out of that water, you're still soaking wet three years later. I'm still soaking wet. Um, in that, in about three weeks, I'm going back for more surgery and more radiation to eliminate some stuff that's been hanging out. So I think the biggest thing with this whole process is that you're never done. You know, you get, there's, you're still, you're still processing things. You're still living through it and you have to have support. So and let's let's talk about that then. So great for that. Yeah, and let's talk about that. You know, we use um, fifteen to thirty nine as our definition of young adult because that's what the government says, and largely due to screenings. Um, totally. And but I mean, we have plenty of people in their teens and their forties that are relevant and consistently engaged with our community and we get it but the idea of having young children when this happens to you is what makes our stories so unique and so different from the six-year-olds and the 60-year-olds so can we talk about what it was like to talk to your children about this and what it's been like for them and have they gotten any support from any structures or systems at the center yeah um actually my 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 older son ben writes he blogs he writes on my blog quite frequently. He has found writing to be a release. It really has helped him. He hates being in the hospital. It makes him feel like I'm sick and it, his anxiety kicks in. My youngest son, he misses mom. You know, when's mommy going to be okay? You know, all those scary thoughts go through his little head. And you have to help them verbalize it. So that's where stupid dumb breast cancer came from. Those are naughty words in our house. So I let him say those words because then then he, he had a release. He got to say naughty words, and it made him feel powerful, and he was <laughs> stomping it out. And he um, he would take his Legos and, you know, my mom defeats breast cancer. And, you know, he would actually act it out with his Legos and his superheroes. And it was that was therapy to him. But my, my kids, every year we do a cycle event here, and the money goes to Camp Kessum. And they really love it. They absolutely love it. They love being involved in it. They love helping other kids, and they love talking to other kids about how their mom got through cancer and how they got through it because it is a family 
adventure when you're in this with kids. Right, and I'm a huge fan of Camp Kesson. We try to work with them as often as possible because the children that are there have parents like yourself that need yeah. community, that need stupid cancer, that need to know they're not alone and, and a platform to share their stories and people to read um, what they're talking about. So, so let's talk about your blog because a lot of young adults take the blogging when they're well. Um, but what, what made you decide that that was the platform for you to talk about your story and then to get your son involved was pretty impressive. So what happened was I just needed somewhere. My family is loud and obnoxious and they would ask me a million times, when's your doctor's appointment? What's, what's going on now? So I just wanted somewhere for them to go and read in one spot so I didn't have to keep answering the questions. And then all of a sudden, like people in Ireland and California and Australia were reading it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, people are reading it. I I don't even write that well. I'm not even putting a period at the end of my sentences here. But they were reading it because they were relating to it because I wasn't faking it. I was just being myself. And then Ben had to write something for school, and I put it up there. And it was the most widely received piece that I ever posted. It was shared more times than anything I wrote. And I actually, Kirdiva asked him to write something for Mother's Day. And that actually was printed in Marie Claire magazine because it was so well received. And then it was put in Parenting Another piece that he wrote was put in Parenting Magazine. Because what ended up happening was I had parents writing me saying, thank you for writing that. I was wondering what my son was feeling and why he was so angry. And now I know. Because that, the thing of it is, is these kids are mad and they're taking it on their parents. But they're not mad at us. They're mad at cancer. And cancer is not in front of them. So they have to take it out on someone. So they're taking it out on us. And Ben wrote that in a blog post. And it resonated with so many parents. And I had so many parents come, calling me up and writing me and saying, thank you. I get it. I get it. I understand now why my son, my daughter is upset. So let's talk about then. So first of all, what was your actual diagnosis? Um, I was stage one breast cancer. And what treatments? I mean, and it is the gift that keeps on giving. What what has been your treatment so far to date? So I had a double mastectomy. My implant shifted. I had them removed. I had the DIEP, and I said no to chemo because I had no lymph node involvement. Since then, I have some cells that are hanging out, and I'm going to get them zapped in a couple weeks, and we are going to do probably six, 24 rounds of radiation. Okay. And uh, did you test any uh, 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 genetic things going on yes, there? Yes, I don't. I do not test. I have no genetic mutation, nothing. I have nothing. And it's, no family you know, history whatsoever? No. And my, actually, my, mater, my paternal grandmother did have breast cancer. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to make those I, links, but we, we, we need to talk about it. No, we do. We do. And I actually, I had a full hysterectomy right after my breast cancer diagnosis and I had my mastectomy. I had five precancerous tumors on my ovaries, so that all came out. And I have some thyroid issues that are watched as well. So you are very involved in the cancer community because of your, born of your condition, so to speak. How did you discover um, the resources that you have? Like Camp Kesem, you know, I love them to death, but they don't really do a great job of marketing. It's really word of mouth. No, they don't. So um, I went to SU, and um, I work with a local um, cancer center here called Cancer Connects, and 
through my fundraising, my money goes to there, and they just reached out to Cancer Connects, and they said, hey, would you like to do a fundraiser for us? And it just happened to be at the time that I was doing a cycle one. So that's how we hooked up with Cancer Kessum. But you're right, their, their marketing is not all that it should be. And it's a great organization. And the, the camp itself is run by college students who yes. are all alumni. Fun. Yeah, fun and energetic, and they're great kids. Like, we run into them around town, and they immediately know my kids. It's fantastic. Right. So your blog, stupiddumbbreastcancer.com, um, you know, you, you write a, a, a bunch of really personal stories. You write songs, and you, you quote people. I mean, it, it's, it's really very human, and you are really good friends with Sephora Razor, a personal friend of mine, Andy Goodman, uh, what what's it like to be on the other side where friends you have pass and the guilt that may have, you know? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think it, we I would be remiss to not talk about Sephora at this conversation. Um, I met Sephora right at the end, right at the beginning of my diagnosis, right when her and Annie were both deemed cancer-free, ironically, after that, being both metastatic after that. And I was then deemed cancer-free, and they're both metastatic. And I, you're right, the rush of guilt, like, why me and not them? And as Sephora got worse, and I took her to a doctor appointment, and, you know, we walked out of there, and they said, you have a cold in your, you know, maybe it's bronchitis, and we're shaking our heads like this isn't bronchitis. And I walked out healthy, using quotes. I shake my head, why is this me and not her? I, it breaks my heart, and the guilt is very real. And I miss her every single day. She was by my side through every step of this process, and her leaving this earth was very, very difficult, very difficult. Um, it makes me angry that we don't have more treatment available for anyone with metastatic cancer. It also makes me sad that a woman in her 30s, early 30s, that that was her path, and I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand why childhood cancers aren't funded more, and why there isn't much more research towards it. Because I know she's not a child, but at 34, it's too young for me to even fathom why we're not putting more research into this. I just, I just don't understand, and that's why I will always advocate for it. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a slippery slope when you try to really get so granular. It, it, when you talk about pediatric cancer and young adult cancer, the biology is very, very yeah. different as to why we get it, how do you treat it. You can't give a 33-year-old with, with triple negative BRCA the same therapies. You can give a 65-year-old with tri- triple negative BRCA, um, and we just haven't ironed that out yet. And hopefully the direction that I see science moving is really more on the one-to-one individual therapies that are based on your genomics and not necessarily this sort of one-size-fits-all treatment for one specific person. Exactly. And there are, we are making strides. We really are. Immunotherapies, there are things that are, you know, you know, even with Herceptin, I mean, we didn't have that years ago. And we are making strides, but we need to keep talking about it and bringing those conversations to the table and stop talking about the same things that we talk about all the time. We don't need to talk about those things anymore. We need to bring the more controversial things up to the forefront and talk about it more so that they're not so scary and so that they are more um, acknowledged and more discussed so that people can understand them more and not turn their face and be like, well, I don't understand that, so why are we discussing it? 
Right. I, I mean, I, I, I'm with you, and, and that's, that's why, from my perspective, the young adult cancer community is so much more vocal and so much more influential than any Absolutely. other group that I've seen. I mean, breast cancer, we, you know, we're not about body parts, you know this, but when we, when we unite ourselves around the unique conditions about why we're different as young people that aren't six and 60, that matters most. I want to take the remaining couple of minutes to talk about some, your, your mission seems to be on the navigating, you know, th- with, through and beyond. And, you know, it sounds like you're not quite beyond, but you're navigating your life and trying to make it a little easier for people to deal with the now. Yes. Yes. Um, I think it is important afterwards because I think that our doctors give us all the skills during your treatment, your chemo, your radiation, your surgery, or what have you, and then they send you on your merry way. And a lot of people, myself included, deal with post-traumatic stress, survivor's guilt, all of, you know, whether you had breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or bone cancer, and you're dealing with the, you know, uh, body images of that afterwards, you're dealing with a lot. And our, our doctors aren't talking about that, and that's really something that's important to me, especially with the young can- with people with young cancer. You know, hello, we have people that are, have want to go out on a date afterwards. How, why aren't we discussing this? How do they date after cancer? That's huge, huge. Yep. It needs to be brought to the conversation. That, that, needs, that needs to be at the table, and it needs to be discussed. So, all right, so let's work through a magic scenario is is it really the oncologist's responsibility to be the therapist or should the hospitals have structures and systems which many do and that are evolving now around young adult specific psychosocial issues i think i think the hospital itself should have should have it in their hospital a, some sort of support group or structure to lead people in that direction i mean it, social media is great they could even be guiding them to a site like yourself, like stupid cancer. I just actually met a girl 27 years old at an event that I had. I led, it was a Cure Diva event. I led her to stupid cancer. I said, you're 27, you need to go check out stupid cancer. There's so many people there your age. You have to use tools. We're right here. The internet's not going anywhere. Right. And social media is a great way for support. It's We have an anonymity on there. You can kind of let your hair down and really be who you are. There's no judgment. So basically, this is you're talking about access. You know, young adults yeah. need age appropriate access to age appropriate resources and support, and and individuals like them and peer uh, communities. You know, I, I I am happy to say that there's been a significant improvement in that need and that infrastructure over the last couple of years. And even just today, I was reading that Hopkins is now even Sloan Kettering. You know, the, the recalcitrant Iron Curtain of Sloan Kettering is now creating a young adult cancer um, uh, clinical care coordination program, not just a support group. So, And that's, that's great for those big hospitals, but what about small Syracuse, New York? That's, it, you know, it's these small communities that are suffering just as much. And right. I, I, I raise that I raise that issue all the time. Eighty percent of all cancer patients are diagnosed at not giant cancer centers. Eighty percent right. are diagnosed and treated in local communities. And I just had I was at a meeting about this, and the the challenge with getting those types of individualized age or generationally relevant programs into the community centers is cost. They don't have the billion-dollar endowments of MD Anderson Center. They're largely dependent on state funding. 
or Medicaid subsidies, and it's not something that they have a budget to implement. So we're seeing that a lot of young adults who go to the big centers are clearly better off because they're the ones that can implement and afford to have right. these massive structures. But it's the young adult with breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast, whatever it is, that's in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, that that, that hospital, to not their fault, just does no. not have the literacy because they don't have the capital to invest in a navigator. And we do need navigators, without a doubt. You right. need a nurse navigator. There's, there's so many aspects of this cancer journey process, whatever you want to call it, that falls through the cracks that you, you just are not told. And afterwards, you wish you were, or you, you find it on the web, you find it in a blog, you find it here and there. And it, it there's stuff that really helps you and really gets you through it in such an easier way. And that's really what I want. It's really, I just, I want people to know all these tricks and that we learn through all of this. And really, the support is huge. It's so huge because to know that you're not alone in this whole thing gets you through it. 70% of people will succeed because of the support. They will succeed. And not maybe not survival. I mean the mental part is what I'm right. talking about because that is a, that's the part that we are lacking in our in our society is the mental aspect of the cancer community is the mental aspect of it. I look at my friend's support. I look at Annie and the mental anguish that they went through during their last few months was horrible, horrible. Forgot their pain. I mean, that that's managed under, you know, morphine and everything else that they were getting. What about their mental part right. and everything that they were going through? It makes me angry when I, when I think about that. It really gets me upset. Well, I think being angry is what helps our movement fuel itself and inspire others. So my advice to you is just to stay angry. And I I really do want to thank you for coming on the show. Anne-Marie Otis. Thank you, Matt, for having me. CureDiva.com, StupidDumbBreastCancer.com. You are clearly on a mission to help others and their loved ones tackle the what now. So thank you very much. Good luck to you. Thanks, Matt. All right, bye-bye. Have a great night. Okay, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something can be happening in the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have meetups happening in Phoenix, Arizona, Arvada, Colorado, Temecula, California, and that's it. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about hosting meetup in your own neck of the woods, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Cancer is lonely, and we've got the cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by young adult cancer. Now available for download. Just search for Instapeer in the iOS and Google Play stores today. We launch an issue aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media, even though it is social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive, and we're proud to announce CancerMadeMeBroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser you didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. 
It's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool and some new stuff for summer. We've also got an awesome skateboard, and don't forget about Flip, the Cancer Bird. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And And that that is yours. Stupid Stupid Cancer News. In our main segment on this show, Jen McRobbie faced breast cancer, then turned her experience into a best-selling book titled, Why Is She Acting So Weird? A Guide to Cultivating Closeness When a Friend is in Crisis. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Jen McRobbie. Jen. Hello there. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the show. No, it's my pleasure. We love having authors on the show because people like to write books, and oftentimes it's all about their story, and this is not. And, and it, it, it speaks to a much larger narrative in general for cancer, but specifically for younger people. That is, you know, cancer kind of messes you up for real, and a lot of times your friends just don't get it. But before we get to the book, you were diagnosed with uh, with breast cancer at the age of 38 uh, three, two years ago, coming up on your three-year cancer anniversary, I understand, correct? That is correct, yes. Out of the blue with no warning, I was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer because I noticed changes in my breasts and pressed my doctor uh, to look into it. And so I was my own advocate, and we then discovered I had cancer. So um, I'm also a poster child for um, listening to your body and following after your doctors until you get the results that you want. Yeah, and that, that speaks to one of the major issues why, why, our, why stupid cancer exists is largely due to a, a really boring public health report from 2006 <laughs> how outcomes for young adults had not really improved very much uh, when you compare them to pediatrics and older adults, and largely because of late detection. And the barrier to late detection is if you get a cancer that you can detect, like breast cancer, oftentimes it's primary care that doesn't take it seriously. And there's debate over whether they should or they shouldn't or what their burden is, but you are exemplary of someone who just didn't take no for an answer. Well, right. And and the worst part is all of the people that I heard say to me, you know, in the medical community throughout this whole situation, these people telling me, oh, you're too young, you don't have to worry about it. And clearly, I wasn't too young, and clearly I did need to worry about it. <laughs> so, right, the opposite. Um, that's part of the reason why I'm such an advocate for stupid cancer also, because you put that word out there that we need to listen to our own bodies, be our own advocates, and just really uh, make sure that we take charge of our own health care. Right. We're hearing these stories more and more, too, and, and there's a larger narrative about the role of primary care because... Do they really need to be, you know, completely literate about a 1% chance that the person they see in their 20s and 30s, you know, could have cancer? But I go back to the fact that if that young adult shows up more than once in a month, there's probably something legitimately wrong with them. Agreed. If if you keep going after it, then they should then respond in kind. I mean, and hopefully you have a relationship with your doctor by the time you're in your 20s or your 30s where they're going to know if you're the type of person who's going to freak out over every little thing or if you're coming with an honest problem. So some of it, I think, is relationship building with your 
medical care providers too. Right, and then you're at the mercy of who that provider is, and a lot of people fire their primary care doctors. <laughs> you know, so it's a whole like it's like I remember I go back to um a young woman named Chris Carr who uh, was diagnosed with a an unpronounceable like thirty syllable cancer that is untreatable, but she coined the phrase that when you hire your doctor, you have to hire your doctor. He is the CEO of Save My Ass Incorporated. And, you know, you get to hire and fire the CEO of Save My Ass Incorporated. And that is so very true. What was your actual diagnosis? So my actual diagnosis was for for people that speak breast cancer language. It was ERPR positive, HER2 negative, um, and I was a stage 3A. So what that means in non-cancer speak is um, my hormones were what were driving the tumors in my breast and my cancer spread to my lymph nodes. So I had to have a mastectomy, chemotherapy and radiation in order to make sure we got all those little buggers in there. So you had, uh, and then reconstruction. Correct. Yes. Yes. And then reconstruction. Exactly. So I would ask you, um, were you uh, single, married, children at the time? So at the time I was married and I have two children and um, they're eight and five now, both little girls. So I carried the burden that a lot of young people that get diagnosed with cancer carry of having to explain to my children (laughs) what was going on, what was happening while it was happening and they're young. And, you know, my husband bore the burden of caring for the family and me during the whole situation. So um, it is, it wasn't fun. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. You know, fertility is just that if I get asked someone, well, why young adult cancer? Why are you guys special? And I say, we're not special. We're different. And the number one reason why we're different is because we have eggs and sperm that work. And and like, oh, wow, (laughs) you're right. That does make you different. I didn't think about that before. And I don't really fault you know, the average citizen for not putting that together because is it really their responsibility? But it really is what defines young adult cancer is you're at a point in your life where you're supposed to be taking 10 steps forward every day, you know, building your career and, and dating and getting married and having children and owning a home and doing all the natural things you're, that we expect. Right. And then it just railroads you at the time. Um, so your children were, you said they're eight and five now, so they were what? They were three and five. I'm doing math really bad. When you were exactly. done. I mean, they were, yeah, they were basically three and five, six and four ish. Um, so my four year old really wasn't old enough to understand what was going on. And we would just sort of talk about mommy's boo boo. And we would only talk about it in terms of, you know, don't pull on me, don't jump on me. Um, but my six year old at the time was, she's, she is a mature six. And so she was old enough to understand what was happening. So we began to develop a language to talk to the girls about, you know, cancer and chemotherapy and radiation and surgery, you know, things that we didn't expect to have to talk to right. them about. But my favorite story, and, and you'll appreciate this, I think, Matt, is we sat my daughters down on the couch to tell them that I was going to be losing my hair to chemotherapy. And so we sit down and we're holding their hands and we're having a very serious conversation about how mommy's going to have to take some medicine that's going to make her hair fall out. And so then I respond to fill in the gap. My husband is bald. And so I say, so mommy may look like daddy. And the girls fall silent for about two or three minutes. 
and we're waiting for their response. Right. And then all of a sudden, they break out into absolute peals of laughter. And then my older daughter stops and says, wait, you're going to grow a goatee? <laughs> <laughs> so There you go. It shows you that, you know, you can use all the language, but you have no idea how they're really going to respond to it right. until you, you know, provide them with the, with the vocabulary for it. Um, we had a, in our spotlight, we had um, uh, Anne-Marie Otis, who was also diagnosed with breast cancer with children, um, at young children. And they had gone to a, a camp called Camp Kesem. And I don't know if you're familiar with this or what kind of support your children got. Did they get to meet other children whose parents were, were sick? You know, we didn't do that, and we didn't do that only because they seemed to be coping very well, and they were talking to us the whole time. But had they not, I would have definitely loved to do something like that. Right. So in your career at the time, what were you doing when this all happened? (laughs) Boy. So um, I am a life coach, and I was coaching and sort of building my practice and trying to decide where I was going to go with this whole life coaching thing. And um, then I got diagnosed and I called my clients at the time and told them, um, I can't coach you anymore. I have to basically stop working while I take care of my health. And the primary benefit of that is my clients at the time were all cancer survivors. (laughs) So they got it like right away. And they helped create a community for me of young people who had been through cancer and in fact most of them were breast cancer survivors and so they were able to provide me with information and support and care on a level that I'm not sure that other people who aren't sort of already involved in the cancer community have when they get diagnosed so I feel really quite blessed. I mean, there's really no other word for it to have already met those people before I got diagnosed. Right. I have a friend named Eric Galvez who was a doctorate of physical therapy, like a marathon triathlete guy, uh, (laughs) got brain cancer and then wrote a book called When the Expert Becomes the Patient. And that seems to be very similar to your story. Oh, that is. I'll have to look up that book. That sounds fantastic. But that's exactly what happened. And so You know, I had this ready-made group of friends who really got it, who understood what I was going through. And then I had my other friends, and no fault on them, and thank goodness they had no idea what I was going through or why I was acting so weird, which is why I titled the book that. And so um, my book kind of came about just from watching the interactions and experiencing the interactions between, you know, these different groups and between people with me and how people interacted with my husband and um, how they interacted with each other. And it was just really fascinating to me because the people that I expected to do really well and really rise to the occasion didn't really. Right. <laughs> and then the pe- then people just came out of the blue and provided me with just so much love and caring and support that I was blown away by it. We've used the metaphor uh, sifting the flour when young adults get diagnosed to see who stays and who goes and who might come that you didn't expect out of that woodwork. And it seems like your story is no exception to that rule. 
No, unfortunately not. Yeah, the the metaphor that I use is um, an elevator. (laughs) So, um, you know, you get on an elevator, and sometimes when you get on an elevator, there are people already on there. And you go up a few floors, and they get off, or more people get on, and, you know, you travel up until you get to your floor. And I think friendships are very much like that. You know, we sometimes travel with people for a long time, and then it's time for them to get off of your elevator. Or sometimes you're standing on the elevator and you're so annoyed by the people you're with, you just have to get off on the next floor, even though it's not your floor. So I use a similar metaphor when I describe what happens with friendships, so, particularly during a crisis. Yeah, I mean, I, I lost so many friends when I was diagnosed, but I, the friends that stayed are the, the friends I still have and friends come back after a while. But you're right. I mean, I like why she acted so weird. I mean, there are people that don't have cancer that are pretty weird to begin with. <laughs> you know, so we give credit where credit is due. But at the same time, you know, is so your book, Why She Acting Weird, A Guide to Cultivating Closeness When a Friend is in Crisis. Is this a book to give your friends when you get sick? So, yes, technically speaking, it is. I mean, really, my primary audience for this book is the friend, not the cancer survivor. And right. here's why. So. Uh, When I started experiencing my friends acting really weird and doing strange things that I didn't expect, um, I did start searching for places I could send them, you know, websites or books or something so that I didn't have to explain every nitty-gritty detail about what I was going through. And as I was doing that research, there's nothing out there for friends, Matt. Nothing. There's caregivers, there's spouses, there's families, there's kids, and then they often lump friends right in there with that. Right. But friends don't have the same relationship with you that a caregiver does. No. Or that your parents do or that your children do. And so I kind of got irritated that there was nothing out there for me to send to, you know, my friends. And so rather than let that irritation eat me alive. I just went ahead and created it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you're right. Caregiving and co-survivors, these words were used. There's, there's what I found through stupid cancer is that there, there clearly is a huge shortfall in resources and community for caregivers, but you're right. Friends are a different category and need to be treated in a in sort of a, with, with a different definition of, of relationship. Um, what, what have you found to be the, the, you know, because friends say, how can I help, right? That's the question they always ask. How can I help? Does this book address that? It's like, it's like leave me alone is typically what I tell people on <laughs> how can I help. There is a little bit of leave me in, alone in there, but I don't say it exactly like that. Right. No, this book does address that. And But the interesting thing is the sort of twist in the book, I'll give it away for anyone that hasn't read it yet, um, is that the number one way that you can help your friend So the number one way my friends could have helped me is if they had stopped and gotten some support for themselves first. Right. So I didn't need and could not deal with their complaining or their concern or their fear because I was too busy dealing with my own overflow of emotions. So the first thing that I tell people is find somebody else to talk to. It can be another friend. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a therapist or a you know, medical professional. Find somebody else to talk to about your fears, number one. And then number two, try to be yourself. Well, yeah, that's so hard 
to it you is. Know, yeah. It's the hardest thing, but but it's really the most helpful thing, as you yes. know. Uh-huh. You know, if people go and start doing like really random things for you, like someone that you don't know very well, and all of a sudden they're coming and knocking on your door saying, "Give me your kids for a week." Like, that's yeah, right? Not yeah, it's not gonna happen, you know. So. What I advise in the book is to do simple things. So whatever simple things you would have done during your friendship, you know, like would you have dropped a card in the mail? Would you have sent an email? Would you have cooked a meal or, you know, bought a present? And Do those things anyway. Right. I mean, some of the posts on social that get the most play, either on our page or other pages, is the top 10 things not to say to your friend with cancer, <laughs> yes. you know, but you look great bald, you know, yes. <laughs> do you, do you, do you get into that a little bit? Like things not to say? I do. I get into that a little bit, but I get a little bit more into the psychology of it, to right. be honest, or at least my personal psychology where it's like, don't say, you know, things that are going to make me have to talk about what is going on with me right now. Right do say things that will help us chit-chat. And then if I feel like talking about it, then I will because, you know, the simple chit-chat has opened the door to being vulnerable right. and being able to talk about it. So um, while I don't give a top 10 list in my book, I think I give you the basis for figuring out what your personal top 10 list is. Right. So, And you, you wrote this book during treatment. I mean, was this an outlet for you? It was. It was. I actually wrote it. I started writing it towards the end of radiation and then had to take a break because radiation was just such a bear for me. But um, it was a complete outlet. It was a catharsis. And so one of the things that I would say to um, anyone who has had a crisis listening to this show is that don't hold back on creative endeavors because you're scared of what's going to come out. Um, because, you know, it's, it's kind of terrifying if you're a painter and you're sitting down in front of the canvas and you're painting all black because you're feeling like, you know, crap that day, right? right, right, right. But that's, that catharsis is so necessary. I feel like this book really helped me recover more quickly from the psychological aspect of having had cancer. Now, I can't help but mention that you are, a rec- in your own words, a recovering army captain, I think that I that's an important thing to mention in your bio that you have a military background. I'm sure that came in handy a little bit. Well, it definitely comes in handy for having children because I run them like a small military. <laughs> unit. <laughs> but no, I think it did come in handy. And here's why I know how to um, shut off parts of my emotional brain in a crisis so that I can deal with whatever is you know in front of me. So that's a really good trait you'd think right right it's also kind of a bad trait because i don't always go back and address those emotions sure and this book really helped me do that so that's why i say i'm a recovering army captain right can you give me an an anecdote about one of your friends who was maybe was specific in mind as you wrote the book whose behavior did change because of this relationship you're developing with them yeah actually the there is a primary relationship that this book sort of centers around. And I pepper the book with different um, anecdotes from different people. But um, the person who was my best friend at the time, um, we're no longer best friends, unfortunately. And 
um, this book is about me going back and trying to figure out why, like kind of what happened. And this is why I say it's such a catharsis. You know, at the time when she was disappearing from my life, I was angry about it. You know, I was hurt. Mm -hmm. But by taking the time to go back and write it all out and really think about it, I put myself in her shoes and I realized I'm the one that's acting weird, not her. Right. I was the one that was changing our friendship. And, you know, granted, not on purpose, right? I mean, cancer sucks and you're going to do weird stuff. But going back and being able to analyze all of that really helped. And so, um, unfortunately, that friendship didn't survive this, but others, you know, did and they thrive. Just like you said, you know, the friendships that you did keep are probably the best ones that you have. I mean, part of me, there was there's a reconciliation that I went through many, many years later that where there, I felt a degree of empathy for my friends who, who just couldn't deal with it. But that's really an unfair way to, to, to sort of categorize it. That they couldn't deal with it. You know, they didn't you don't become friends to get cancer one day. And right. you know, I was like, hey, let's let's be buddies. I'll be sick one day. Good luck with that. It'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and. I mean, empathy is really just the word that I, I had to, you know, I reconciled with myself. Like, I, I in the moment, yes, it felt like, how dare you do this to me? You're my friend. But in the long run, they made a decision that was in their own best interest to help themselves. And it, it you, you could perceive it as being selfish, but at the end of the day, that doesn't do you any good to keep that negativity in your mind. You're exactly right. Someone the other day characterized my book as really um, a compassion guide. And so it's a little bit of how to be compassionate to yourself as a friend. And if you're reading it as a survivor, how to be compassionate to yourself and compassionate to your friends. I'm reading one of the um, reviews on Amazon of your book, and it's from a doctor. Um, and it, I, I'm curious to know, um, you know, wh what is the medical community's take on your book, if they have the chance to know it and read it? So that doctor is my breast surgeon, and his name is Hernan Vargas, and I um, asked him to do advanced praise on my book for a very specific reason, and that's to find out the answer to your question. And apparently, um, doctors, they don't know this stuff. You know, they know how our bodies fit together and how all that works, but they don't get a chance to really understand the psychological impacts of cancer until someone tells them about it. And so I think this book can also benefit the medical community because it can help them understand all of the other stuff that's going on. Right. And we were discussing with my, my first guest on this, this broadcast the role of the medical doctor, the role of the oncologist versus the potential role of the nurse, the nurse navigator, the social worker uh -huh. on this notion of literacy and then the disparity between cancer patients, the 20% who are treated at major cancer centers, and the 80% who are not, where they may not have anyone but the doctor to be aware of this. That's exactly right. And, and I think you used the term literacy, and I think that's the proper term for it. You know, this book isn't going to change somebody's medical practice. Right. You know, as much as I'd like to believe that it would, <laughs> it's not going to change someone's medical practice. What it's going to do is give somebody sort of a more well-rounded idea of what it's like to be sitting in the chair across from the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think any I, I don't think anyone could argue with that being a beneficial viewpoint. Right. I really like your take on calling it more of a compassion guide for friends to understand 
it's almost like their choices. You know, yeah. what what do I do now? I'm the friend whose friend got cancer. What do I do? And I, I like that. I, I, you're right. I, I really don't, nothing comes to mind that sort of solves that moment in time for those folks. Well, and I mean, frankly, nothing can really solve that until you do something. And so, you know, in the book, I also talk about what do you do if you realize you made a mistake? So, you know, like I tell a story about a guy who, t- who basically started joking about my boobs and then the joke just went too far, <laughs> you know, right. like you can only take so many jokes about your boobs after you've had cancer and lost a breast to it. And so basically what I say is, okay, you know, you, so you're this guy and you've made this mistake. What do you do now? You either go ahead and just change the subject and that's fine. You know, your friend will understand that you're uncomfortable and you realize you did something dumb because you're friends and we do that all the time. Or you have the option at that point to apologize and really open up the dialogue to be able to say to your friend, I'm really sorry. This makes me so uncomfortable and it's not you. It's not me. This just sucks. And the favorite thing that anybody ever said to me during this whole fiasco is, man, that sucks. Right. Right. I mean, isn't that sort of the most empathetic statement you can say, <laughs> say to someone with cancer? Yeah, pretty much. All right. So I have a softball question here to, to end the interview. Uh, <laughs> breast cancer. How many people gave you ribbons and dressed up in pink and painted their house pink and did all these pink things for you? And, and did that really oh bother God. the crap out of so, you? Um, yeah, pink. I'm not a fan of pink. <laughs> I have two daughters, Matt. I have two daughters. What am I going to do about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of pink um, because I'm pretty sure we're all aware. Yes. Well <laughs> At said. At this point, I'm, I'm, I'm done with being aware. I'm ready for us to move on past awareness and, and cure this and all the cancers. Well said. Well said. Uh, Jen McRobbie uh, turned her cancer experience into a best-selling book called Why Is She Acting So Weird? A Guide to Cultivating Closeness When a Friend Is in Crisis on Sale Now on Amazon. Jen McRobbie, thank you so much for coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, folks, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 346th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show. Hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Anne-Marie Otis and Jen McRobbie. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity that comprehensively addresses young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show, 
Bye, folks. Everybody.